I, I think I was able to take some of the concepts that I wanted to take and make them even simpler. That's what I think printmaking was able to do for me. Just take the image, make it simple, and make it bold. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printmaking, their Woodzilla presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist, while still guaranteeing a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Celeste de Luna. We talk about growing up as a Gen Z latchkey kid in the Rio Grande Valley with a love of books and animals and how an encounter with the steamroll printing event saved her from a life as a tortured painter. Border futurism, and the distinction between protest art and art that tells your story, as well as what does it mean to have a Catholic imagination. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to think about your future with Celeste de Luna. Hi Celeste, how's it going? Great. Good, good. Thank you for taking some time away from, it sounds like a, a little family time to sit down and talk with me. I'm really excited to dialogue with you about your work and your practice and your story. And it feels like perfect timing because I'm just more or less on the heels of seeing your work in person at Print Expo. And I just am really excited to see what we're going to talk about today. So thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So before we get into all of it, would you please introduce yourself by way of saying who you are, where you are, what you do? My name is Celeste de Luna. I am in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm a printmaker and an educator and an Wonderful. artist. Yes. And then where did you grow up and what role did art play? in that part of your early life? I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, and art was a part of my life in that, I guess I just grew up like drawing. I was a latchkey kid, Gen X. I did a lot of entertaining myself. So TV, dogs, chickens, <sighs> as pets, not as food, and TV and you know, drawing, coloring books, crafts, things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that image that you're kind of painting there of coming home and not really have anything, having anything outside of the home to make up that time between school and, and caregivers coming home. I just really connect with that because I was mm. also a latchkey kid and, and mm. feeling also, of course, in the pre-internet days, 
that kind of smallness of it's just it's just what's in your house you know and you have to you have to yeah. you have to cut through time with that and so I also spent time in front of the tv drawing trying to put a bow around the cat you know <laughs> yeah I spent a lot of time doing all sorts of giving my dogs haircuts <laughs> being outside we had three channels because we lived in a really rural area so there wasn't sometimes there wasn't anything on tv drawing, reading a lot of books, having fun, playing with my toys. I didn't have any brothers and sisters, so it was really mm. boring. I had to find ways mm. to entertain myself. <laughs> yeah. And so what kind of things did you draw? Were you inspired by comic books, television, the natural world? What was the, what was the early Celeste compositions? I did like, I liked animals a lot. I was really, I love my dogs. I would collect stray dogs. I liked cartoons that I saw on saw on television I remember drawing like cartoon cats a lot I, and as I got older I started collecting comic books and so at first it was stuff like Batman and I remember my cousin had a lot of Spider-Man stuff a lot of Star Wars figurines and then I discovered um like horror comics and like I had Sandman comic books and things like that and I would try to copy things like that that I saw so I do a lot of copy work, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know how to yeah. draw. So you copy what you, you can see. And then I had art teachers in, in middle school who tried when I, 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 I learned what they taught me. They weren't maybe the most sophisticated art teachers because it was a very rural community, but they did what they could. And, and, and I learned from them, but it was a very small town community. And so I spent. A, I also spent like a lot of time with my friends, and we did like a lot of getting into trouble too. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so I would say that um, I wasn't one of these kids that was just into art all the time. I was also spending a lot of time like I spent probably just as much time reading, and then later on, as I got older, I was spending a lot of time like trying to find out what other people were doing. You know what I mean? So. I don't think, I think because the arts weren't emphasized and then there weren't a lot of resources in my community, um, I was just trying to figure out like what was going on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean? Yeah. So it, it, it's a, it was a kind of a different, it was a kind of a different kind of a world, a, a very small rural world. Um, and, and then my parents were older, so it, it, I was sort of, a, it's, it's almost a hard to, it's kind of like I, thinking about that time, it's almost like hard to, like I was almost a different person. <laughs> you oh, know what yeah, I mean? yeah. You know, I almost have to like think in a different language when I think about that time. Even though I mostly spoke English, it's almost a different language I was speaking at that time had a different vocabulary at that time. Mm. Yeah, I think that's such a interesting and, and I think feels very true way of what it's like to reflect on being a little human, that mm -hmm. your collection of experiences is so limited. You know, particularly yeah, I, I think if you if you grow up in again, as we, we spoke to a little bit before, like a pre-internet age. So just like mm -hmm. the, your access to what you can input into yourself is small. But then just, especially if you live like this, like this, 
the structured life of you go to school, you come home, you see friends. And then it's, yeah, you sort of technically know that it's you or it was you, but it, it really feels almost like watching a movie or something about <laughs> someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also remember that I like to read a lot and I think I use, try to use books to escape a lot. And then I also remember kind of my people, maybe not even just my parents, but other people be telling me, you read too much. Stop. Really? Yes. Like them telling me that it was weird and to stop doing it. <laughs> they, uh, to, that I should stop reading so much because that it was like maybe antisocial or not right in some way. Yeah. What kind of books were you reading? What What was that early creative influence in that way like? I had a teacher who would read us the Narnia books, which I really mm-hmm. liked. And I read a lot of books about animals. So like that one book about the girl who was stuck on an island with the wolves. I forget which one. Mm. I forget what, what book that was. And like the old yeller book. Like I love that book a lot. And um, of course, like The Incredible Journey. And oh, and then what I really liked, strangely enough, was the Little House books. I like oh, those really because I felt like I was like Laura because I was like stuck out in the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, totally, and, totally. Yeah, and, and then I just thought it was so so funny, like um, that. Like they had, I was like, well, at least I don't have to churn my own butter, you know? She right, yeah. These- <laughs> At least I'm not worried about cholera. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I really liked all of those books. Anything with fantasy in it. And later on, I got into like all these science fiction books. And like those, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Get to Mm -hmm. the Galaxy and all of those books were really, um, were into, were on my list for a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like all of those are just such world-building books, you know, ones that really yeah. fully pull you into someplace else. Yeah. A Wrinkle in Time. Those yep. were, were, I think, on my, when I was in the fifth grade, those were my, yeah, those were really fun. Yeah. And so at what point did art making, image making become more a part of how you spent your time and how you expressed yourself? What was that evolution like? I mean, I, I always loved making art, but again, I would say not until like, I kept taking art classes, the few art classes that we had in high school, but you know, the same art teacher I had in middle school, we had the same, it was the same art teacher throughout high school. So we just didn't have a lot because again, it was a very small town. And so when I got into college and I never really considered art to be like a, a real possibility for me. I always thought I, I loved art and I liked to draw and I collected comic books throughout the whole time I was in high school. And I just thought, I go, I really like art. I think I'm just going to be an art teacher. But I never mm. really thought. And my parents, they're like, you can't be an artist. Don't be crazy. <laughs> 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 and then, and I just didn't have any examples. I didn't really know anybody who was an artist. So, but I did know that you could be a teacher and I knew a lot of teachers. I had teachers in my family and I thought, well, I can be an art teacher. But even that, like I had my uncle who was, um, he, he was like, are you sure you want to be an art teacher? Why don't you be an English teacher? And I was like, no, I put my foot down. 
was I'm going to be an art teacher, right? And so when, when I went, I was like, well, I went to school. And just to like placate everybody, I told them, well, I know you can take a test and you can test out of being an English teacher. And I had always been a good at like language and writing and stuff. So when I did graduate with, did my undergraduate work in art, and I also got an education, like I t- took education classes at St. Edwards in Austin. I tested and um, I was able to test out of that English certification thing. So that made them happy. <clears throat> but when I applied, I got a teaching job as an art teacher. And oh, right okay. away, right away, I started teaching art. And I was like not much older than some of my students when I started teaching. Because I feel like a lot of the people that I know from the Valley, from my age group, Gen X types, we started, te- we started, we went to school, we graduated, and then everybody just started working. Yeah. Nobody took any time off that I yeah, know. Yeah. Nobody like went and found themselves or traveled. Everybody just went to work. And so then... Everybody was like, like my best friend, she did the same thing. And she looked, she looked all of like 12 years old. And she was like a registered (laughs) nurse, trying to treat people. And so, and it was the same thing for me. I started teaching and then I was like teaching other students. I had these seniors who were not that much older than I was when I was an art teacher. But the good thing is at that age, you have all this energy to teach. Mm-hmm. And, and so I did. I started teaching. And, and so I taught for a while and I loved it. I loved teaching art. And, but then after a while, I was like, you know what? I think I want to learn more. And I went back. I learned that you could get a master's degree and that they would pay you more and that the school would pay for it. Mm, cool, cool. Yeah. And so... I started taking a couple classes and, and that's what sort of piqued my interest in getting like more of a degree. And, and then eventually I quit full time because I was like, I think I really want to like delve into this, like really like focus on making art. And, and then that's when I did really start creating artwork and I was studying painting. I wasn't studying printmaking. I did a little bit of print work during that time. Somebody like gave me some linoleum and was like, here, try this. Right? <laughs> but I wasn't seriously studying. I saw a few prints at that time in person, but it wasn't until I met, well, I met Jesus de la Rosa and he invited me to do a steamroller event where I really caught like that printmaking bug. Oh, and, nice. and I was like, he would invite me to do the Tamak steamroller event every year. And I was like, I want more of this. What do I got to do to do more? And so I would try hand printing. I would try to, I built one of those car jack presses from some plans that sent me online. I would look at stuff online. I found Sean's Star Wars at Burning Bones Press. And then I went and took a, a workshop over there. And then what else? Then I found more more of those outlaw printmakers. And then I went and took a workshop at 
Evil Prince. And then I went to Frogman's and, and then before you know it, I was like, I have to buy a press. So, (laughs) (laughs) so it just sort of built on itself. And so I'm self-taught in printmaking, but the paintings that I created in graduate school, those were, I did do those as, as an MFA student. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what do you think it was about printmaking that once you sounds like you had that introduction through Jesus that it just kind of really snowballed from all the workshops and mm-hmm. what made you kind of connect with it in a way that sounds like you really knew that this was something that you would be fruitful to learn more about. I think it was because I was such a tortured painter. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Tortured how? I was just so frozen as a painter. I I would it would take me so long to finish a painting. I my process was so like I, it just took me so long. And then I was so precious about each painting. I I didn't want to part with a painting. I didn't want to sell a painting. I didn't want to sometimes I didn't want to show a painting. Mm. I just I don't know. I I I never felt, it just took forever. I struggled with color sometimes, color choices. There were so many choices. I felt like Mm -hmm. I was indecisive sometimes as it is. So, and printmaking, it just, it just, there was something about it that was just so, I guess like, especially when you, when I started with the black and white, There was something about that that sort of removed this idea, removed some of that, those choices, and let me have like just some directness of that image that was appealing to me. And I did have, we did have a visiting artist one time who did tell me, he goes, I think you should do more of these prints. There's something about your work that I think fits well into icons. Hmm. And um, I should have listened to him sooner because I kept painting for a while. <laughs> I kept painting for a little bit. And, and then, uh, and he was right. He was, uh, now I'm working more in color. I've been doing more, some monochromatic color reductions that I'm really enjoying right now. But I go back and forth. I'll go back to black and white and then color black and white color, black and white Mm -hmm. color. Um, Yeah. I I love black and white. I mean, I think it's part of the reason why I love print so much is mm -hmm. there's something about the power of an image when it's just two colors. And I think something about the boldness of that contrast between black and white, the white of the paper, the black of the image, and... Mm -hmm. I think when when it really pops, kind of given those, and we could call them limitations, but just like given those limited parameters, you just, there's nowhere for the image to hide. Like the image just has to be good. You can't, the composition there needs to be spot on because there's no smudging or working your way in through it any other way. And I, I think that just still gets me. I think it's part of the reason why I love 
like black and white tattoos, which I think we talked about a little bit in Austin when we when we were hanging out there for during the expo, is that it's just like that's just it. Like it just has to be good. And yeah. and you can see it from far away and it hits you right in the bread basket and you know if it's good and, and you can go from there. So I I get that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What was what were your early image making explorations like when you were getting into printmaking and, and working with the different media? Was it the same work that had been coming out in your paintings? Was it like a, a, a through line of, of expression and form or did printmaking bring out a different side of it? I think I did take some of the images that were going through my paintings and sort of making them, some of them simpler, taking some of those elements and then simplifying them. Uh, some of maybe, maybe some imagery, but I think the concepts, I, I think I was able to take some of the concepts that I wanted to take and make them even simpler. And that's mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. And that's what, that's what I think printmaking was able to do for me. And then also um, like just take the image, make it simple and make it bold and put it out there. Mm. And, and then also make it make it unique, like a unique voice, like something that was mine. And and that's what I wanted. Something very bold, something. I like the big I like the big prints. There was something about those big steamroll, those big steamroller prints that I just I don't know. I just loved working on them. I loved making them. I loved watching them come off of the I love watching them being made. There, there was just nothing, but I just got really thrilled mm. them and watching them being made. Yeah, there was just such a, a great feeling about that. They were really physic physically challenging to do, and then and, and I just really enjoyed that, and still do. Yeah, and you'll you'll print on fabric too as well when you're going big. Is that do you, part of your practice? Correct. Mm -hmm. and yeah. Just the the fabric stuff is is really fun because there there's all there an error is always <laughs> error uh <-huh>. is <laughs> so with the the paper you're always so careful uh, and with the fabric you don't have to be so careful i don't feel like i have to be careful and uh, and then you can rip it up and sew it and do different things with it mm. and make that part of your make that mistake part of it or yeah. I mean, necessarily mistake, but just make whatever happens part of the work. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I think for for many reasons, there's something, at least for me, that's inherently stressful about a very large sheet of paper. Like that's yeah. just like I know it's expensive. I know <laughs> that like it could the wind could catch it, and yeah. it could get bumped into something, and the fibers can break, and then like that's mm -hmm. it for the paper. <laughs> and you know, you it's harder to move around but because fabric has its it's just so much more flexible in its qualities and often particularly you've, you've talked about getting thrift store fabrics so you're not looking at something that represents truly hundreds of dollars like a mm -hmm. large sheet of of cotton ragwood but just something that has already had a whole story 
and then come to you and is waiting for the next section of its of its life. Is there something kind of nice about that too? Right. I have shopped for a lot of thrift store stuff, but I have whole things of fabric that used to belong to my mother, a seamstress, like a home. I mean, I wouldn't say maybe seamstress is the wrong word, but used to sew. She used Mm -hmm. to sew her own clothing. She used to sew my, some of my clothing when I was a little girl, like dresses, shorts, things like that, like very simple home type of clothing. And so I still have like lots of stuff. And so I sew on that. I I mean, I print on some of that fabric as well, try to incorporate that. And then I have a lot of like things like doilies, like, like doilies and, you know, what they call yo-yos and scraps of fabric that, uh, that I incorporate into, into some of these works. Yeah. And then you've said as, as part of your practice, you're interested in sort of creating a sense of place, mm-hmm. particularly around around Texas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even those that could be said can be politically charged or even kind of volatile because mm-hmm. Texas is a very complex place. Mm-hmm. Why is it important to you to, to try and capture that sense of place, even though it can be a little bit fraught and a little bit tricky and, and it's not there's not maybe necessarily easy visual vocabulary to draw from when you're going into it. Well, Texas is really huge for one. Yeah. So it's probably not possible for me to capture every single thing, every area, but I am trying to capture my experiences in the areas that I've lived in. So, so like in the certain areas that I've been in, in the Rio Grande Valley, that's where, especially in that time where I was living, the, the border work that I created in about 2009 20, through 2020, that's, that border work I think is, captures a certain time, time period. For me, that was trying to make sense of that time. So mm. my work isn't, I think for some people, like the political work might be like what they, what you might call like, like protest work or for me, the work is more trying to make it make sense of, of the work. Like you're creating the work about abstract ideas so you can make sense of them. So I think for women of color, you're trying to create art about abstract ideas. Like why, why are why are they creating laws about our bodies? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, why are they creating laws so that about birth control? Why are they creating laws so that people can't cross? Why are they creating laws? There's a, do you know who Gloria Anseldu is? Mm-hmm. Okay. So she has this theory called Otto Historia. It's a way for women of color to create art about abstract ideas by grounding them in personal and community histories. Mm-hmm. And so, so for me that is what my art is and so like a lot of people like sort of like confuse i think my art as being like resistance work like it's a political or protest thing and i don't i don't consider my work that it's like i'm sort of like documenting or thinking about what's happening around me 
And so like as a child or and I think a lot of women in my community maybe had this similar experiences that I did. We were sort of being told a lot of things about like how to control our bodies, what to wear, what to say, uh, who to date, why you shouldn't date this boy and that boy because so and so and so and so. And, you know, so all of these things kind of become all mixed up in your head. And so I think mm-hmm. my artwork is a way to kind of unravel those things. Like, and so that's what my artwork is. So when I talk about my work being about embodiment and how people are moving through their environments, I think that's what I'm talking about. And as I moved to San Antonio, I used to, I was kind of like really upset at first. Mm. (laughs) Oh, I lost, I've lost like sort of like this muse, right? Like my, like I've lost something, every, like everything I'm going to be creating artwork about, but I really didn't because what really happened was I sort of expanded my territory in a sense, you know, I just moved further north and San Antonio is a border town of its own. It's just like an older border town because, Mm -hmm. and there's just different ways that women are walking in San Antonio and people are walking in San Antonio. And so I'm finding that out now. It's been pretty interesting to to find that out and to do that research. My work's been taking a different direction recently just because I've been thinking just a lot about the environment and other things, but but I'm still thinking about women's bodies and women's like how how we're still being controlled. People really don't like People really want to control what ha- what women do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what women say, what women uh, talk about, what kind of medications we take, and and it's uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah, and it's it's interesting what you were saying about how your work often gets read as you do something of protest when you're mm-hmm. just reflecting your lived experience. And that idea, I think of like the personal is political, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to the body, you know? As you say, like what, what you wear, what you say, mm. reproductive rights, lack of reproductive rights, medications, all of that kind of stuff, this mm-hmm. is what gets legislated and tried to control, you know, you look at even at all the anti-trans legislation, that's the same thing that's trying to control the body and what individuals make choices over it. And so you can make work from such a personal place because the body is such a personal thing. It's our, it's our vessel. It's mm-hmm. our meat suit that we have to walk <laughs> around in and be judged on. Mm-hmm. And there's so much about it that the powers that be or both political powers and also social powers 
try to take away that agency for for many people, usually people for the people who aren't in power. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And and then I also I think also there is no universal border experience. You know, the, mm. the border, the Texas Mexican border is about, I don't know, something like twelve hundred I think it's twelve twelve hundred, maybe nineteen hundred miles long. And there's an El Paso, there's El Paso, there's Laredo, there's the Valley. I mean, there's all of the California border. So, and then the experiences of different people are different. So, and they're all valid experiences, right? And we need all of those different experiences to kind of make a complete picture of the of of borderline experiences i think so i don't think that we can like ever have like enough border stories mm. or borderline experiences like border like because you know i think maybe maybe perhaps people are like oh heard one border story heard them all no mm. <laughs> you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna have to have like a multiplicity of stories to kind of get a complete picture because there's so many different kinds and so many different people and there's not just one and there's so many there's different people have different perspectives can you talk a bit about the the border futurism project because i think maybe it i had learned about it before we went into our conversation and then Mm -hmm. you know thinking about you speaking earlier about getting lost in these these sort of things like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy as a child and wondering if that it all comes back for some of the imagery around that but anyway I'd, I'd love to hear you speak to it yeah I definitely feel I went into border futurism with a sense of optimism and I needed it <laughs> especially after 2020 I always had this really lo- big love for science science fiction and all those Godzilla and monster movies and things like that. But I would say the seed probably started when I was working with Las Imagenistas Collective. And we did this project with community where we did imagining with community about what the border would look like in the future with community where Mm -hmm. it felt good. And I started thinking about animals in the future and what they could do to adapt to environmental disasters. And so then I just started kind of imagining that. And uh, and then I came up with these like little images of animals. And I've told you about my love for animals. Mm. And and that started with like a long series of pets that have long passed. May they rest in peace, right? <laughs> and, um, so, so right now I have uh, like a print up in an exhibit in Albuquerque called, called Millennial or Millen- Millennium. And it's uh, Toadzilla versus LNG. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like this sort of really large, 
horned Texas horned lizard and he kind of like Godzilla and he's sort of in this like hoku size great wave sea and you can see like this ship with LNG and then I have a Posada spider with this like oil rig and he's kind of like fighting against these forces with all these waves and and then you have like these like storage things with I guess and and so it's like a series of images of like these cryptids and animals I have this other one with an ocelot who's kind of like morphing through a border fence through a fence could just be a fence any kind of fence you know fences are just kind of like Ocelots are these Texas, like these small Texas cats. And for a while they were like really endangered. And I think they're off that really endangered list right now. They're making a comeback, I believe. And, but they're really these beautiful, special Texas cats because not only are they, do they have stripes, but they also have spots. So -hmm. you can find them in the Rio Grande Valley. They have like, have them a lot in special protected parks and so it's kind of like morphing through the fence. And then I also have another one that has the chupacabra that's saving a Ridley sea turtle. And Ridley, Ridley sea turtles are special here in, in South Padre Island because there's a sea turtle rescue here where they kind of like specialize in saving the sea turtles. So, <clears throat> so and then I have another small image of the sea turtle of the Ridley turtle kind of like jetting off into space, right? Because I did that one when we had that whole Texas freeze Mm. and I was kind of like imagining them kind of like piecing out (laughs) when it froze, like when it froze here, because sea turtles, when it gets too cold, they kind of get stunned and they just like sort of float around in the ocean. And so Sea Turtle Inc. here on South Padre Island in the Rio Grande Valley, they had to like collect turtles and the people were like just like throwing them in their trucks and they were like trying to save them because they got Mm. frozen and they were just floating around. It's really sad. And so like these environmental type of issues, like these turtles, you know, what are you going to do when and how are these animals going to adapt? So I imagine these turtles like just sort of like sort of rocketing off into space and just getting tired of earth mm-hmm. like the rest of us <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah identify with that yeah <laughs> bye <laughs> piecing out not likely i mean so fan so fantastical but but you know that's what science fiction is right mm-hmm. and so so that's what that those those images are about just killed wild fun things yeah and like i definitely picked up on that kind of hopefulness that you were speaking of and i think that that's something that sci-fi where it can be really dark it can be kind of warnings of possible futures Mm -hmm. there's also such a hopefulness inherent in it that there is a wild future full of sentient creatures having adventures Mm -hmm. that is there and and you know sometimes they're they're not human but they're still with drama and morality and and all the things mm-hmm. that that we tend to think of as important as humans they're still out there yeah, yeah. I just feel like I feel like if after 2020 and 
COVID, after the pandemic, I sort of needed something fun and positive <laughs> to kind of like make me ex- make me happy. <laughs> I needed mm-hmm. something that was hopeful. And I think the, the work, the idea of looking into the future with animals that were kind of like doing things that I wanted them to do and be hopeful about the future gave me that. In your work, there's just it's really, really rich in in iconography, in symbolism. You spoke to the the animals that show up, but then also you'll see like birds or cicada. And I feel like animals as iconography is such a, a long and beautiful tradition and visual culture around the world. And I'm hoping you could maybe speak to, I don't know if you've got like a research process or if it's intuitive, but like how, when you're creating a composition, do you know what needs to go in it to connect to the ideas that you're coming from through like the use of the symbols that show up in your work? Oh, that's probably because I grew up Catholic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Catholic imagination. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up Catholic. I had a, an aunt who's still a sister um mm. a nun and and I went to I spent some summers going to Rockport to a convent in Rockport for some girls retreats and so so we grew I grew up with images for prayer as images as comp- contemplation mm. so, so so we're taught to pray the rosary but but we were also taught like um how to like different images, different images of like the, the Virgin Mary and the different images as of Christ as and the different saints as images, like we would just look at them as images of contemplation, like you have to look at this image and like think about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean, we wouldn't even I wouldn't really pray, I think I was just like looking at them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You would just study the image, really. And so I think, if anything, like, let's have good art. Mm -hmm. I've often said that I think that Catholics have the best aesthetics, like the the Mm -hmm. incense, the robes, the, Mm -hmm. like, the suffering on the cross, like, all of Mm -hmm. that is, it it works, you know? (laughs) They're in a good show. I mean, it's (laughs) it keeps you entertained, at least. Now, I mean, as far as, like, research is concerned, I mean... I would say it's probably intuitive, but mm-hmm. those were my those were my early experiences. I look at books. I still yeah. do. I was influenced by a lot of the the imagery here in the the valley. I mean, it's um, it the you can't beat the a subtropical area full of beautiful animals and birds. Totally. So, the light here is pretty glorious. So I, I can't, I don't know, my training wasn't, I wouldn't say that my training is the best. So, <laughs> I mean, so I would say it's pretty intuitive. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like a, like a combination of the visual language of Catholicism, which is really the bedrock for the visual language of the Western world. I mean, if you look at mm-hmm. like the Renaissance that everyone's always looking back to in Europe. So in terms of like navigating Mm-hmm. Um, 
the way we dissect images and kind of read them, it's just so, so heavily influenced by that visual tradition. Mm -hmm. And then it sounds like also the actual connecting with nature and, and that intuitive and that lived experience of, of appreciating animals and nature and the, the combination of the two can just make for a visual language, yeah, that's like very much your own. Yeah. I mean, I did go to a Catholic university too. So Oh, yeah? Yeah, I did. I ended up going to St. Edward's for undergraduate. I spent pretty much, I, I went to church all the time. I went to church mm-hmm. as an adult too. A lot of the influences, I would say, also just, there's just so much religious imagery here in the Valley as well. There's Basilica here and there's a miracle room. Mm. And if you've ever been to the miracle room, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, and then there's also this, there's shrines everywhere. The shrines are like, kind of like, I mean, they're a visual language of their own. They're like these installation pieces, but I would say, and my mother was a very, she was a very um, creative person herself. I mean, she made she made, she made pinatas. She was, she was always very like, she made, she just made a lot of things like all the time. So just, just a very sort of creative maker sort of person. She just knew how to, she sewed clothes. She made things. Um, I would say that just everybody I knew, like a lot of people I knew knew how to make, make things, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Just on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. And th- that making is a, is a part of everyday life and maybe not this like uh, thing of a sort of otherness that's like now it is art when it becomes yeah. something else, you know, that it's just that like to create is to be human, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, do you have anything that you're particularly looking forward to? Any any projects on the horizon? Any exhibitions, projects you're looking forward to being done with? Anything you want, kind of want to shout out mm-hmm. in the latter half of 2023? I'm working on a body of work, and maybe in, and I think that's that's my biggest thing right now is creating is working on this body of work. I'm trying to kind of stay out of everything else. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. And then where can people find you and follow you? They can find my find me on my website at www.celestaluna.com or on Instagram at Medsley Press. Beautiful. Well, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for letting me steal an hour away from the beaches of South Padre Island and... <laughs> <laughs> from you and and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and and I look forward to sharing our conversation. Thank you Miranda for having me. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts where our editor Timothy Pauschak digs deep on materials, processes and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, You can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. 
Join me again next week. My guest will be Peter Nickel. We talk about how standing in front of a Rembrandt self-portrait as a child set him on the course to be an artist, even if he didn't know it then. The power of seeing such art objects in person, his long hiatus from making, and how he got back into the flow. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.